Throughout this episode, you'll hear occasional dynamically placed advertisements as well as host-read ads by me promoting the work of my sponsors, similar to what you'd experience when you're binging your favorite YouTube content. If you find the ads disruptive, consider joining my community on Patreon. Premium submarines receive full-length ad-free episodes, hundreds of hours of bonus content, and the ability to connect and chat with other listeners. To learn more, visit patreon.com slash backfromtheborderline. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, Molly. My name is Kimberly. I'm from Boulder, Colorado. I'm 25. I've been in partial hospitalization treatment. I've been an inpatient a few times. I just want you to know that your podcast has meant so much to me and has brought so much clarity and validation to my life. I want you to know that your hard work does not go unnoticed and that, Molly, you are so incredible. Your words and your work have changed my life forever. And I just want you to know how deeply I appreciate you and your wisdom that you bring to the podcast. I love you, Molly. Thank you for providing this, not only for me, but for everyone else too. I love you. All this focus, focus is supposed to be scientific. Welcome to Back from the Borderline. I'm your host, Molly, and I don't want to talk to your personality. I want to talk to your soul. The idea of alchemy is to reduce something with fire, burning it down so that something new can rise from the ashes. You can do this with your personality too. You can perform emotional alchemy. You've always had the power, you just didn't know it, and now you do. On this podcast, you'll learn to view your symptoms as saviors, as alerts from your body, mind, and spirit that want to let you know when you're out of alignment with the deepest yearnings of your soul. From chaos comes clarity. Through working with and integrating the concepts we'll explore together, you will emerge transformed, standing in the ashes of the person you used to be. Welcome everyone back to another episode of Back from the Borderline. And I just wanted to thank Kimberly for that absolutely beautiful voicemail. My heart just 
rips open when I hear those emotional and vulnerable voicemails like that. I know exactly what it feels like to be in the darkest, dark night of the soul where you feel broken and misunderstood and you finally come across someone whose story and voice and wisdom aligns with exactly what you need at that moment. Podcasts were some of the first things that I found that really helped me when I started recovering. Primarily my favorite podcast in the world called This Jungian Life and it's three Jungian analysts and they just dive into some really deep existential topics and also they're so soothing and it was my escape. And I felt exactly the same way about those three hosts as what you seem to feel about me and my work. And what's really important is that I share openly and vulnerably about my deepest and darkest times. And I have by no means got this all figured out. I have my moments of complete breakdown still. I sometimes get super imposter syndrome recording this podcast because I'm not a professional. I am no guru or someone who's, you know, reached some pinnacle of healing, but it makes me so happy. My heart warms and I am deeply honored that I can be that parasocial big sister figure that's just maybe a few steps ahead on the road of recovery and I can share resources that resonate with all of you. So thank you, Kimberly. I love you right back. I'm sending you the biggest virtual hug all the way through the airwaves right now and I hope you hear this and I'm so proud of you. I hope that you're proud of yourself and just remember this is a lifetime journey, you know, and damn, the 20s are hard. People don't talk about that. Being in your 20s can really fucking suck. And I promise you, as you move into different stages of your life and you enter your 30s, I'm not saying there's no more suffering yet, but you do start to realize the cyclical nature of life and you start to get better at tuning into yourself you start getting better at recognizing patterns and red flags and you can surf the waves of your emotions. Just remember these big feelings, this heightened intuition that you have is a superpower. You just have to learn how to use it and how to not let it make you its bitch. That's what I say. It's not a very uh, therapeutic way of putting it, but this isn't a therapy podcast, is it? Another really good metaphor that I like is, you know, in Marvel movies or superhero movies, and please don't come for me, Marvel or superhero movie fans, because I'm going to butcher this, but you know, when a superhero gets like a super, they get their arm chopped off, right? And then maybe they get it replaced with this super arm. And the thing is, is that, you know, when a superhero is getting used to this new power that they have, they might accidentally like break stuff and fuck things up with this massive new amazing golden super arm that they have. But once they learn how to use it and balance it in their life, it can actually be a superpower. So think about it like that. You just have to learn yourself, learn your sensitivities and learn how you can use them to help other people and learn how to ride the waves. So 
I hope that that's helpful for you, Kimberly. I'm so happy that you are here listening and thank you for sending this voicemail because I think a lot of us can relate to the emotion that you're feeling and how it feels to finally come across a resource that helps you feel seen and heard because I have those for myself and it just sometimes I have to pinch myself and be so grateful that the work that I do and all of the effort that I put into this podcast can help people just like you, Kimberly, because that's exactly why I do what I do. So now let's get into today's episode. This is going to be the third and final part of a multi-episode exploration around the concept of spiritual emergencies. Now, This series is absolutely meant to be listened to in order for it to make sense. So I highly recommend that if you haven't already done so, to go back and start out by listening to part one of this spiritual emergencies series. As a quick recap, in part one, we talked about what exactly are spiritual emergencies and the different types of triggers. We then moved into how these types of spiritual emergencies are diagnosed. And then on part two, we really dived into all the different varieties of spiritual crisis, shamanic crisis, awakening of kundalini, types of unitive consciousness or peak experiences, crisis of psychic opening, past life experiences, communing with spirit guides and channeling NDEs, and even close encounters with UAPs and abduction experiences, possession states, as well as a discussion about the connection between alcoholism and drug addiction to spiritual crisis. There is a ton of misinformation out there about these topics and I'm hoping that this series, especially these first two episodes that we dived into all of this information from about as academic perspective as we can get when it comes to these more, you know, transpersonal and hard to pin down topics like spiritual emergency. But for the most part, the average everyday therapist is not going to know about this information. So it can leave a lot of individuals that are going through this type of crisis feeling crazy, disordered, dysfunctional, or like they are just kind of without an anchor in all of this. And throughout this series, we've been exploring this incredible article by Stanislav Grov. He is a pioneer and one of the principal developers of transpersonal psychology and research into the use of non-ordinary states of consciousness. Stanislav Grov's wife, Christina Grov, the two of them formed the Spiritual Emergency Network, abbreviated as SEN, in 1980 in response to the lack of understanding and respect for psychospiritual growth in the mental health profession. Since its founding in 1980, the Groves eventually handed control of SEN over to other individuals who've done a fantastic job over the years carrying on their work. In 1994, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual for the fourth edition of the DSM of the American Psychiatric Association actually supported the Groves' insights by including spiritual and religious issues under its category of conditions, which are not mental illness, yet lead people to seek mental health services for spiritual emergency. This is a huge accomplishment. 
And this recognition has opened the door for a specialization in spiritual issues. And in 1998, the Spiritual Emergency Network moved to the California Institute of Integral Studies, or CIIS, bringing SEN, the educational resources of CIIS, and providing unique access to the spiritual emergence population. In 2002, um, according to their about page on their website, in order to best reflect their expanding vision and services, they changed the name to Center for Psychological and Spiritual Health. And in August 2003, they closed this clinic due to a lack of adequate funding. Shocker, right? Surprise, surprise that they weren't able to find funding for something like spiritual emergence research. However, they continued to get phone referrals and support, and so they created this amazing online database for self-referral. And if you go to spiritualemergence.org, you scroll down the left-hand side of their page if you're on a browser, you can literally scroll all the way down to directory. They've listed and put together a network of over 200 professionals that specialize in different types of spiritual emergence. I'm pretty sure that this is just in the United States, but I'm sure if you reach out to them, they have an about page that does include some contact information, I believe. So feel free to reach out. I plan on reaching out to their team to see if I can have someone from SEN who's currently working there to talk to us more about this. I think that would be a really cool episode, uh, but for now I'm going based upon what I can see online. Also on spiritualemergence.org, there is a section on their website called USA Transpersonal Links, and they have linked to a ton of other really interesting looking resources that seem like they could be incredibly helpful for anyone who might be thinking that they might be experiencing spiritual emergency. So it sounds like this is an incredible resource to be able to find something and a place to start because there's just such a lack of information around this. So on today's episode, we're going to move into the final part of our exploration on spiritual emergency, and that is the treatment of psycho-spiritual crises. How does a professional go about treating and helping an individual that is going through some of these different types of spiritual crises that we explored on part two? So that's what we're going to get into. What I'm going to do is go ahead and break to provide a shout out to my sponsors, as well as take a little bit of an ad break for some programmatic ads. And I like to do that sometimes at the very top of the podcast so we can get that out of the way and so that ads don't interrupt the flow of the episode midway through. So we're going to do that. And right when we're back, we're going to jump straight in to part three of our exploration on spiritual emergency. Before we dive into the heart of our discussion, I want to take a moment to recognize my podcast sponsors. Their support plays a vital role in what I do here, and it's because of them that I can continue to create and share content freely, making it accessible for listeners like you. So as we step into this short ad break, remember that these moments are more than just ads. They're a bridge that connects to continued free content for all my listeners. So stay with me, and right after this brief pause, we'll be jumping straight into today's episode of Back from the Borderline. Thank you for your understanding and continued support. 
This episode is brought to you by Jung Platform, a unique online space dedicated to exploring the depths of your unconscious mind through the lens of Carl Jung's teachings. Jung Platform's on a mission to make the transformative wisdom of Carl Jung accessible to everyone. They believe, just like I do, in the power of this knowledge to change lives, offering a wide range of courses that dive deep into topics like dream work, mythology, and the psychology of relationships. Each course on Jung Platform is taught by highly qualified instructors who are experts in their field, who bring not just knowledge, but a passion for Jungian psychology. By engaging with these courses, you can hope to gain profound insights into your own psyche, learn the art of understanding your dreams, and embark on a journey of self-discovery and transformation. When you visit backfromtheborderline.com and click on the link for Jung Platform, you can use the code MOLLY10 at checkout to receive 10% off your first course. This code is valid for all of their courses except for their official certification programs. So don't miss this chance to explore the rich world of Carl Jung's work and wisdom. Begin your journey into the depths of your unconscious mind today. This episode is also brought to you by Pure Spectrum CBD, a company that's redefining the standards of CBD products. At Pure Spectrum, purity isn't just part of the name, it's their promise. Their products are crafted with the highest quality organically grown hemp, ensuring that you get the purest form of CBD. CBD is increasingly acknowledged for its potential mental health benefits, which may include aiding in the regulation of emotional responses, supporting trauma recovery, and contributing to the overall balance and regulation of the nervous system. These aspects can be particularly beneficial for anyone navigating the complexities of emotion dysregulation, offering a complementary approach to fostering a more centered and resilient state of mind. Whether you're new to CBD or an experienced user, Pure Spectrum has a range of products to fit your needs. If you follow the Pure Spectrum link at backfromtheborderline.com, you'll be able to lock in 15% off your first purchase on top quality CBD products. My favorite product of theirs is their Tranquil CBD CBN Tincture. I really like this because it helps me fall asleep and stay asleep when I really struggle with insomnia around the luteal phase of my menstrual cycle. But remember, just because something works for me doesn't necessarily mean it will work for you. And CBD can interact with some medications, so it's always a good idea to check with your healthcare provider before adding anything new into your routine. Don't miss this opportunity to experience the benefits of pure, high-quality CBD with Pure Spectrum. Just follow that link at backfromtheborderline.com and your discount will be waiting for you. And now that you've heard from my sponsors, you're going to hear a short ad break. These aren't your usual ads. They're dynamically inserted, much like those you might encounter in a YouTube video. Now, I want to be upfront with you. I do not personally select these ads. They are automatically chosen by my podcast hosting platform. And this setup is essential because it helps me keep my content free and accessible for everyone, especially those who might not have the means for a paid subscription or to be able to purchase products or services from my sponsors. To ensure a smooth and enjoyable listening experience, I've placed these ads at the beginning. This way, we avoid interrupting during the episode and you can immerse yourself in the content without any
any breaks. Remember, you have the freedom to listen to or skip these ads as you see fit, but just by tuning in, you're supporting the show in a big way. And for that, I'm incredibly grateful. I really appreciate your patience and your understanding. Nobody loves listening to ads, but they help me keep this show running. So now you'll hear that quick ad break and we'll be right back to dive straight into the rest of today's episode of Back from the Borderline. Hold up, what was that? Boring, no flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. All right, everyone, thank you for your patience for that ad break. Now, let's talk about the treatment of psychospiritual crises. Psychotherapeutic strategy for individuals undergoing spiritual crises is based on the realization that these states are not manifestations of an unknown pathological process, but results of a spontaneous movement in the psyche that engages deep dynamics of the unconscious and has healing and transformative potential. Understanding an appropriate treatment for spiritual crises requires a vastly extended cartography of the psyche that includes the perinatal and transpersonal region. Because this article can get pretty academic, I think it's important that we break this down a bit. So, The author Stanislav Grov's concept of spiritual emergency is really deeply intertwined with his broader theories about psychology and consciousness. So let's break down this quote and dive a little bit deeper into the specific concepts of this perinatal and transpersonal regions of the psyche. So as we've explored in the previous two episodes, Grav describes a spiritual emergency as this critical and transformative experience that can occur in our life, and it's characterized by these intense emotional, psychological, and moments of spiritual upheaval. And here's the thing, unlike traditional views of the biomedical model that might label these kinds of experiences as pathological, right, or indicative of someone losing their mind or mental illness or disorder... Grav and his colleagues actually see them as potentially beneficial for psychological growth and healing. So you can understand why if someone is actually experiencing genuine spiritual emergency and they are thrown into a psychiatric unit or into therapy with someone, a psychiatrist who operates purely within the biomedical model and does not understand how to recognize these experiences and this type of symptomology, someone could be pathologized and labeled as disordered, dysfunctional, or mentally ill. And 
Imagine instead being seen by someone who understands this and can help you recognize that this is a beneficial process if you know how to move through it and how detrimental it would be for someone to find themselves just being seen as something being deeply wrong with them. It could make something like a spiritual emergency so much worse. So Stanislav Grov suggests that these types of crises should be approached with understanding and support rather than with standard psychiatric interventions. The aim here is to guide this person through the crisis to achieve personal transformation and healing rather than pathologizing their experience. So when Grov talks about this extended cartography of the psyche, like holy shit, right? It sounds like a lot of words and sometimes you're like, what the fuck does that even mean? This refers to Grov's expanded model of the human psyche. Traditional psychology mainly focuses on the biographical or personal level, right? So basically your life experiences or your personal memories, that's it, period. And I know this because I went partway through my master's degree to try to become a therapist before I dropped out. And this is all you learn about is just the biographical and the personal, right? Someone's life experiences and their personal memories. However, Grav proposes that the psyche of someone also encompasses these broader and deeper domains that the average everyday like a better help therapist is not going to be trained in exploring and he discusses these in this paragraph we just talked about and speaks to them as the perinatal and the transpersonal aspects of the psyche so let's talk about them in order what is this perinatal region that he talks about this aspect of Grov's theory relates to experiences surrounding our birth. He actually proposes that four basic perinatal matrices, stay with me, that symbolically represent various stages of birth. So these stages, he suggests, have a profound impact on our psyche and they are thought to surface during spiritual emergencies, influencing our experiences and behaviors. And he believed that the perinatal stages can bring up deep-rooted psychological issues, which when we work through them can actually lead to profound transformation. So essentially what happens in utero and around your birth has a lot more of an impact on your psyche than you might give it credit for. So for example, shortly after I was born, I developed a really scary blood infection because of cloth diapers that were used. My mom was trying to really help the environment. It's not her fault. But because of that, um, this diaper infected the area that my umbilical cord and you obviously, you know, when a baby's born, you cut the umbilical cord and the umbilical cord in the beginning is almost like an open wound. And it's important to keep that area dry and clean. And the cloth di diapers eventually led to this infection in my blood, which led to a form of sepsis, which meant that as a very small infant, I had to be taken to the infant ICU. And I spent my first, it was either my first Thanksgiving or Christmas in the ICU. I wasn't allowed to be touched by my family. I had to be put in like this, you know, imagine when you see babies in like the little containers, <laughs> that's a terrible way. Any like kind of like 
prenatal nurse is going to be like, Molly, what are you talking about? But you know, when you see a baby in the ICU and they're, they need to be safe, right? You have to keep them healthy. I was hooked up to IVs. And of course, my mom was distraught and besides herself with worry. So was my dad. I had a bunch of family, my grandparents visiting the hospital, and they were really worried that I was going to die. And in addition to that, I was also delivered by a C-section, a last minute emergency C-section. My mom really wanted to have a natural childbirth, but I was late. And again, because of the joys of the biomedical model, it was very common, especially in the 80s and 90s, for a lot of interventions to be happening when babies were late. And there was a lot of pressure put on women to... um, undergo like a cascade of different interventions, whether that be induction of labor, um, unnecessary C-section sometimes. I'm not saying that there never ever is a good idea to induce labor or do a C-section, but never in my life did I ever give a lot of thought to the way that I came into the world and also some of the things that happened before I could really remember, like some of these traumas um, and medical trauma in infancy. But the thing is, this stuff has a profoundly deep impact on our psyche. And even the state of our mother, imagine my mom was absolutely terrified that I would die. I wasn't able to have skin-to-skin contact with her when I was in the hospital. It was completely out of her control. But these things have a massive impact on our psyche. So it's important to think about, according to Grav, about this perinatal region of the psyche. And I encourage you to, if you can, speak to your parents or caregivers, if you're able to, to talk about the state of your birth, what happened to you when you were an infant, if there was any illness, and really reflect upon that and maybe take that into consideration when you are thinking about your healing journey. So the next piece is what Grav talks about as the transpersonal region of the psyche. And this involves experiences that actually go beyond, which is the meaning of the word trans. Trans means beyond, beyond the individual's personal identity. This includes things like mystical experiences, spiritual awakening, and connections with the larger universe. And these experiences can transcend the usual boundaries of space and time. So in Grov's view, acknowledging and integrating these transpersonal experiences is crucial in understanding and treating spiritual emergency. So recognizing this perinatal and transpersonal dimension of our psyche allows for a more holistic understanding of our symptomology. And by acknowledging these broader aspects of human consciousness, Grov argues that what might be seen as a psychiatric crisis can actually be an opportunity for profound personal growth and spiritual awakening. So we have to really be able to recognize the deep dynamics of the unconscious mind, including this perinatal and transpersonal regions, which traditional psychology and psychiatry often overlook. And by doing so, we, according to Grav, we can find that these crises can be seen not just as disturbances, but opportunities for a profound transformation. So let's continue reading. I really thought it was important for me to break that down because it's a lot of academic jargon, but there's so much goodness in there that we could just skim over. So he continues by writing, the nature and degree of the therapeutic assistant that's necessary depends on the intensity of the psycho-spiritual process involved. In mild forms of spiritual crisis, 
the individual is usually able to function in everyday life and cope with the holotropic experiences as they emerge into consciousness. All that he or she needs is an opportunity to discuss the process with a transpersonally oriented therapist who provides constructive support and feedback and helps the client to integrate the experiences into everyday life and suggests literature that contains useful information. So yet again, there's a little bit of academic jargon and I think we could break this down a bit. So they're basically saying here that you don't always need like super intense therapeutic intervention. I want to make this clear that I navigated my own spiritual emergency myself. I'm not saying that that's what I recommend all the time. I think that I had what Grob is describing here, which is essentially I didn't have this severe spiritual crisis where I was experiencing full-on psychosis. I was having what he's describing as these holotropic experiences where I was still able to function in my everyday life. And so let's just extrapolate on what is a holotropic experience. The term holotropic is derived from the Greek words holos, which means whole, and trepeian, which I'm going to fuck up the pronunciation of that. Trepeian. So, but the Greek word trepeian means to move towards. So to move towards wholeness is essentially what holotropic states is. A holotropic experience is an experience in which you are moving towards wholeness. So in Grav's context, a holotropic experience refers to a state of consciousness that transcends our normal everyday awareness. And these experiences can often involve accessing deeper levels of the psyche and often include like intense emotional, psychological, and spiritual phenomena much of which we've described on episode two. So again, if you're listening this far, you've already listened to episode two. But holotropic states can be characterized often by vivid imagery, emotional release, this sense of unity with the universe, and encounters with symbolic representations from the unconscious mind. They can be spontaneous or induced through various means, maybe taking like a low dose of psychedelics, Mine was maybe taking like a little bit of psilocybin. Um, I experienced that. I also experienced it um, when using um, legal marijuana and also just through deep meditation. But you can also induce these by utilizing certain breathing techniques like holotropic breath work, which is something that Grav developed himself. As I mentioned, deep meditation or sometimes in the context of a therapy session. Now, Grav mentions here that something like this, where you're still functioning in everyday life, but you're still going through this and you want to speak to someone about it. To me, when I read this paragraph, I'm like, I kind of am like, man, Grav, yeah, it would be nice, but I myself have tried this. And number one, some of us don't have health insurance. Or if you live somewhere like the UK, which I also experienced, is like, good luck even getting into a therapist because sometimes it's like a month's long waiting list. If you have the ability to pay for private therapy, it can be really expensive. But even then, it's just hard to find someone who has a more transpersonally oriented practice. So transpersonally oriented therapists operate within the field of transpersonal psychology. And this branch of psychology integrates spiritual and transcendent aspects of the human experience 
with the framework of modern psychology. It's not limited to, but often includes elements of Eastern philosophies, mysticism, and other spiritual traditions. To find these kinds of therapists, you can look for those who explicitly mention a transpersonal approach in their profiles or who have training in related methods like holotropic breathwork, mindfulness-based therapies, or things like that. But just notice that someone who just says they do mindfulness, it can sometimes be like how I kind of (laughs) say on the podcast when it's like ABC one, two, three shit, like close your eyes and just silence your thoughts. Like that shit's not going to cut it. So you'll know when someone actually specializes in transpersonal psychology. Professional directories of psychological associations, transpersonal psychology networks, and holistic health centers can be a really good starting point. Just start sending out emails. I highly recommend too, if you find someone that you might want to work with, you can ask them, state clearly that you do believe that you are functioning well. If you are, you're not experiencing psychosis, but you do believe that you are experiencing signs of spiritual emergency and that you're seeking to work with someone that has a transpersonally oriented approach. Ask them if you don't have health insurance or you can't afford their rates or if they don't accept insurance. You can always ask if they work on a sliding scale basis. That's what I'm doing right now. I finally found a Jungian therapist that is transpersonally oriented. She's even written books on this and uh, she is going to see me on a sliding scale because I am in the early phases of building my podcast. I am by no means a rich person and um, I'm really glad that I found her, but it took a lot of searching, knowing what I'm talking about and reaching out and inquiring. So you can do that too. I promise you it's possible, but and I'm hoping that this type of episode can give you the information you need to go out and find someone that you can afford and give you kind of the language through which you can express yourself to be able to get the help you need. Because finding transpersonally oriented therapists can be more challenging because obviously this approach is not as mainstream as other forms of therapy. And these therapists might be more prevalent in certain regions, particularly those with a higher concentration of alternative or holistic health practices. Like for some reason, I found that areas in like, I have a huge amount of listeners in places like Australia and then in like the Nordic regions in like Finland, Denmark, uh, Norway, and then in Australia, I find that they're really open to alternative and holistic health practices for some reason. So if you're in those areas, you might have an easier time finding these types of therapists, but they are everywhere. And I want to reiterate that it is often the case that these types of specialized therapeutic approaches might not be covered by standard insurance plans if you're living in the United States. And this is partly because transpersonal psychology can incorporate non-traditional methods that are not universally recognized within the broader biomedical community. But this can vary by region and insurance provider, but I just want to give that disclaimer. But I mentioned, don't let that stop you. Reach out, explain your situation, obviously make it very clear that you're not in a state of psychosis, that you understand what spiritual emergency is, and that you are looking to integrate these experiences and speak to someone who knows what they're doing, explain your financial situation and ask them if they practice on a sliding scale, if they'd be open to a consultation. And if they don't ask them if they know someone who they might be able to refer you to keep asking and don't give up. 
So Grav also mentions that, you know, the goal of working with a transpersonally oriented therapist would be to integrate these holotropic experiences into your everyday life. You hear this all the time. I need to integrate. I need to integrate. What does that mean? Integration involves processing and making sense of these experiences in the context of your daily life. It's about finding meaning in these experiences and using the insights that you've gained for personal growth and improvement of your life situation. And this can look different for everybody and it will look different for everybody, but common aspects might include, you know, keeping a journal, meditating or engaging in reflective discussions to understand the personal significance of the experiences, making adjustments in your life based upon the insights or revelations experienced during these states. This could involve changes in your relationships, career, or your personal habits. Also, integration is profoundly impacted by having regular sessions with a therapist who can help in understanding and applying the lessons from these experiences in a more structured manner in your life. And also from a creative perspective, many people find it helpful to express their experiences and insights through art, music, writing, or other types of creative outlets. If you cannot afford therapy and you've tried and you are feeling stuck please note that again, as long as you are not in a state of psychosis, then you might have to actually go to the emergency room or, you know, find yourself no matter what, just in therapy, whatever you can find, because it's better to get help than be picky when you are in a state of serious, serious crisis where you are endangering yourself or others. But if you are in this state where you feel like you are okay, you're functioning, but you're experiencing some of these symptoms, but you also can't afford to find a therapist, you can integrate some of this stuff on your own. I did it myself. As I mentioned, it's taken me nearly three years to be able to find someone that I can afford. But in the meantime, I mean, if you're a long-term listener, you've literally watched me do this in real time. I have been reading so many books and I will tell you that on my website, backfromtheborderline.com. If you go there, you will also see a link to my Amazon book list. And I have hundreds of books that are separated into all different categories. Some of them have been recommended by my incredibly spiritual and amazing guests. And they're all listed there. And there's two different categories there. There is I think one on spirituality and mysticism and one on depth psychology, and you can flick through those resources and find some of those books that call to you. Many of them are available on Audible. Some of my listeners say that they've got some of my books that I recommend and they are listening to them while they do artwork. I highly recommend that you start working with your dreams. I've started doing some of those episodes for my premium subscribers where we dive into dream symbols and tend to those. I'm currently now taking a dream tending course with previous Back from the Borderline guest, Dr. Steven Eisenstadt, really working with some of these more mystical holotropic states and integrating that work into our real life does really profound things for the psyche. And you have to be patient with this work because it's not instant. And we live in this Western mind state where we feel like results have to happen fast. And with this kind of spiritual emergence work, sometimes shit gets really hard before it starts to get better. And the only way out is through. So let's move forward to the next part of the article. 
Grov writes, if the process is more active, and by this he means the spiritual emergence process, it might require regular sessions of experiential therapy during which we use faster breathing, music, and body work to facilitate emergence of the unconscious material and full expression of emotions and blocked physical energies. The general strategy of this approach is identical with that used in holotropic breathwork sessions. Allowing full expression of the emerging unconscious material in the session specifically designated and scheduled for this purpose reduces the possibility that it will surface and interfere with the client's life in the interim periods. When the experiences are very intense, all we have to do during the work with the clients is to encourage them to close their eyes, surrender to the process, observe what's happening, and find expression for the emerging emotions and physical feelings. A little side note here, I'm not sure if you have seen this, but if you have been on Instagram or TikTok or anything, you might have seen some of these ads for these like breathwork seminars. And you might have seen these where there are these really snappily edited edited uh, videos where you see a group of people and they're on the ground and the breathwork facilitator is trying to sign you up for their course and you're seeing these really like emotional depictions of people lying on the ground with like a super woman, super hippy dippy looking woman with like maybe wearing all these crystals and she has her hands on the person or like a super sexy guru dude and he has the hands on the person and they're like screaming and like releasing all their emotions a lot of this is utilizing holotropic breathwork techniques but what really miffs me about this stuff is half the time these are just like hot influencer people who have gone through training by another hot influencer person they don't know shit about all of these different transpersonal states and if they do it's barely anything they've only skimmed the surface and they are literally charging people out the ass for this stuff and it's just commodified and People need to be qualified and really know what they're doing to work with these states. And it makes me really disappointed to see people just profiteering off of this stuff. And that's why you have to be really, really wary about this. You have to have your critical thinking hat on at all times to make sure you're not getting taken advantage of because I see it all over the place and it makes me just want to vomit, quite frankly. If you see anyone advertising like crazy, especially if it's a suggested ad and they're advertising out the ass for these courses and especially doing it with these huge groups of people. And it just looks like someone has paid a videographer a lot of money to make this look really flashy. And they're charging a ton of money for this stuff and promising crazy results. I think that you have a very good reason to maybe think that that is a bit of a scam. That's just my hot take on the matter, but obviously use your own judgment. So now that I've been a little bit shady, I'm not naming any names. I'm just saying, <laughs> let's keep reading. If we encounter psychological resistance, we might occasionally use releasing body work like in the termination periods of breathwork sessions. Holotropic breathwork as such is indicated only if the natural unfolding of the process reaches an impasse. Okay. Let's stop and like really, let's just, let's read that again. Because yet again, that just brings up the shady nature of these spiritual influencer TMs, these big breathwork scams. He writes, holotropic breathwork is indicated only if the natural unfolding of the process reaches an impasse. That means the ideal 
thing to do is to let this process unfold naturally within yourself because holotropic breathwork is a serious thing that needs to be practiced under the guide of someone who really knows what the fuck they're doing, not someone who has changed their name to like Jade who spends three months out of her year in Joshua Tree and sells breathwork courses for $444 because it's an angel number on Instagram. Therapeutic work with this category of clients has to be conducted in a residential facility where supervision is available 24 hours a day. I mean, mic drop. That's what he just wrote. So there you go. Decide what you want. These intense experiential sessions can be complemented with Fritz Perl's Gestalt practice, Dora Kolf's Jungian sand play, Francine Shapiro's eye movement desensitization and reprocessing, EMDR, you might have heard of that. Um, It's a relatively new therapeutic technique that came about in the early 2000s. We'll have to do a whole episode on that. Or body work with a psychologically experienced practitioner. A variety of auxiliary techniques can also prove extremely useful under these circumstances. Among them are writing of a log, (laughs) writing a log, I'm pretty sure that also means journaling, painting of mandalas, expressive dancing and jogging, swimming, or other sport activities. If the client is able to concentrate on reading transpersonally oriented books, particularly those focusing on the problem of psychospiritual crisis on some specific aspect of the client's inner experiences can be extremely helpful. Shamanic practitioners actually encourage uh, anybody that is going through these kinds of things to like physically exhaust the body. It's some of the same reasons why um, Sufi mystics, which is the esoteric thread of the Islam religion, right? They do they do spinning. And if you ever want to look that up and be absolutely blown away by the beauty of this practice, look up the whirling dervishes of Sufism. And essentially these people, they spin and spin and spin and spin. And they do this in a really ritualistic, beautiful manner. And this, they do it for long periods of time where you would think like, I'm very, very motion sick. So even thinking about that makes me want to throw up. But essentially they go into this ecstatic state. And even in some indigenous cultures, they do different dances uh, to the spirits and they dance and dance and dance until they absolutely physically exhaust their body. And this helps them process, experience, and transmute these really holotropic states. So I highly recommend that if you are someone who's going through this, especially if you can't afford therapy, but even if you can, try to take up some kind of activity that helps you exhaust your body. If you're anything like me and you are allergic to body movement, I'm not actually, but like I actually hate exercise. I think it's a lot of really has to do with some serious gym trauma TM. I'm making that up, but like I hated gym class. I had horrible gym teachers who were really shaming and awful and being in gym class with like really asshole jock guys that made fun of me because I couldn't keep up. I think it kind of made me subconsciously hate exercise, but I have grown to really like it. If you can jog, if you can, you know, do kickboxing or something, there's so many free things on YouTube, even if you can't afford you know, to do a class, join a a yoga studio, something, do and pick up something that helps you exhaust your body because so many of us are living a really sedentary lifestyle. We're all up in our heads and it's really important that we get moving. Recently, I just bought like 
under $300 on Amazon, a rowing machine. And I have been loving that as a way to work out. And I got this new app. It's free. It's called Couch to 5K and it helps you train to run a 5K and it starts you from someone who like cannot run at all and it really helps you. It tells you when to walk, when to run. It alternates between walking and running. And then over like a, I think it's like a 20 week period, you're like running a 5k. And I'll tell you what, last year I started it. I'm getting back into it again because I fell off because it got super hot this summer. But last year I started it and from being able to barely run at all, I finished it and I was like running for 40, not running, jogging, jogging for 40 minutes at a time. And I went from someone who hated running to actually really looking forward to my jog because it helped me clear my mind so much. So from a fellow couch potato to you, I really understand, but I'm telling you, especially if you're undergoing some of these spiritual emergence symptoms, you need to start figuring out a way that you like to, to exhaust your body. So he goes on to write, people whose experiences are so intense and dramatic that they can't be handled on an outpatient basis represent a serious problem. There exists practically no facilities offering supervision 24 hours a day without the use of routine, suppressive, psychopharmacological intervention. And that's just a fancy way of saying basically without drugging people up immediately and just giving them an injection to shut them down. And look, Again, this does not mean that psychiatric drug intervention is not sometimes necessary and helpful, but the thing is, is that when you go into a psychiatric unit and you're experiencing like this profound spiritual emergency that might involve states of psychosis and the only thing that happens is you getting drugged out, well, then you're not going to move through this experience. He goes on to write, several experimental facilities of this kind that existed in the past in California, such as John Perry's Diabasis in San Francisco and Chrysalis in San Diego, or Barbara Findison's Pocket Ranch in Gazerville, were short-lived. The main reason for it was the fact that the insurance companies, fucking shocker, refused to pay for alternative therapy that was not officially approved. Solving the problem of such alternative centers is a necessary prerequisite for effective therapy of intense spiritual crises in the future. In some places, helpers have tried to overcome this shortcoming by creating teams of trained assistants who took shifts in the client's home for the time of duration of the episode. Management of intense acute forms of spiritual crises requires some extraordinary measures, whether it's conducted in a special facility or in a private home. Extended episodes of this kind can last days or weeks and can be associated with a lot of physical activity, intense emotions, loss of appetite, and insomnia. There is a serious danger of dehydration, vitamin and mineral deficiency, and physical exhaustion. Insufficient supply of food can lead to hypoglycemia that is known to weaken psychological defenses and bring additional material from the unconscious. This can lead to a vicious cycle that perpetuates the acute condition. Tea with honey, bananas, or another form of food containing glucose can be of great help in grounding the process. A person in intense psychospiritual crisis is usually so deeply involved in his or her experiences that they forget about food, drink, and elementary hygiene. It's thus up to the helpers to take care of the client's basic needs. 
Since the care for people undergoing the most acute forms of spiritual crises is unusually demanding, the helpers have to take shifts of reasonable duration to protect their own mental and physical health. To guarantee comprehensive and integrated care under these circumstances, it's necessary to keep a log and carefully record the client's intake of food, liquids, and vitamins. Sleep deprivation has similar effects as fasting. It tends to weaken the defenses and facilitate the influx of unconscious material into the consciousness. This can also lead to a vicious circle that needs to be interrupted. It might therefore be necessary to occasionally administer a minor tranquilizer or a hypnotic. In this context, tranquilizing medication is not considered therapy, as it is the case in traditional psychiatric facilities. It's given solely for the purpose of securing the client's sleep. The administration of minor tranquilizers or hypnotics interrupts the vicious circle and gives the client the necessary rest and the energy to continue the following day with the uncovering process. And this is interesting because it talks about, you know, you see people in these really psychotic states. There are some like ascetic practitioners, like monks, for example, who will fast for long periods of time or literally actually deprive themselves of sleep to induce these spiritual psychotic states under like a more controlled spiritual practice. You can read about this in lots of different spiritual traditions. This is not something I recommend, but I'm just saying like sometimes people that go into these states, they stop sleeping, they stop eating and little do they know they're actually making it worse because without knowing they're doing these things that some like monks and ascetic practitioners actually do to induce and increase the severity of these states. So it's really, really important that someone in this state gets the help that they need. And it breaks my heart that oftentimes they find themselves in psychiatric establishments that operate purely under the framework of the biomedical model. So the article continues by saying, in later stages of spiritual crisis, when the intensity of the process subsides, the person no longer requires constant supervision. He or she gradually returns to everyday activities and resumes the responsibility concerning basic care. The overall duration of the stay in a protected environment depends on the rate of stabilization and integration of the process. If necessary, we might schedule occasional experiential sessions and recommend the use of selected complementary and auxiliary techniques described earlier. Regular discussions about the experiences and insights from time to time of the episode can be of great help in integrating the episode. I mean, right there, they're talking about how important it is to continue with this integration continue moving your body, continue journaling, continue talking about this with people who understand what you're going through, really just not isolating yourself and staying sedentary and not talking about it. He goes on to write, the treatment of alcoholism and drug addiction presents some specific problems and has to be discussed separately from therapy of other psychospiritual crises. It's particularly the element of psychological addiction and the progressive nature of the disorder that requires special measures. Before dealing with the psychological problems underlying the addiction, it's imperative to break the chemical cycle that perpetuates the use of substances. The individual has to go through a period of withdrawal and detoxification in a special residential facility. 
Once this is accomplished, the focus can turn then to the psycho-spiritual roots of the problem. As we've seen, alcoholism and drug addiction represent a misguided search for transcendence. For this reason, to be successful, the therapeutic program has to include an integral part, strong emphasis on the spiritual dimension of the problem. Historically, most successful in combating addiction have been the programs of AA, Alcoholics Anonymous, and Narcotics Anonymous, NA, fellowships offering a comprehensive approach based on the 12-step philosophy outlined by Bill Wilson. Now, this is just what Stan Grob has written here, but in episode two, I went in detail about, you know, we talked in detail about AA and NA, about the positives and negatives of the 12-step program, about absolutely how it can get super culty and how people can get really turned off because sometimes it just becomes like a really fundamentalist Christian environment. And that's not because there's necessarily a problem with the 12-step framework. It's because of what happens when it gets into the hands of people that don't fucking get the idea of the collective unconscious. And the thing is, you can have an amazing framework, but if it gets into the hands of someone who is really ego-based, who is not psychologically integrated themselves, or if they're going to put it through the framework of some sky daddy-based religion thing and shame people and that kind of thing, you know, sometimes it can be not effective. But you can't really look past how many thousands slash millions of people 12-step programs have helped all over the world so clearly something's working there but if you or someone you know about a bad experience in these programs i get it because i used to work at a drug rehab facility and i saw some great meetings i saw some bad meetings and it's just like anything else right like there are some amazing groups i'm telling you i saw some transformative stuff happen at 12-step meetings like some of these people that never had anyone be able to listen to them. There are people sharing and transmuting their toxic shame in real fucking time. And it is powerful to witness. And at 19, before I had any any type of understanding of any of the stuff I talk about on my podcast, I was moved to tears watching some of the stuff I did in these meetings. So Grav goes on to write, following the program step-by-step, the alcoholic or addict recognizes and admits that they've lost control over their lives and have become powerless. They are encouraged to surrender and let a higher power of their own definition take over. That's really important. A higher power of their own definition. Sometimes these groups, again, like I said, they get super Christian and there's nothing wrong with Christianity, but I'm saying if you went through religious trauma already, and then you get into another group that feels super shamey and fundamentalist Christian vibes, this can literally just ruin all of the helpfulness that you'd feel from this program. So again, let's read. A painful review of their personal history produces an inventory of their wrongdoings. This provides the basis for making amends to all the people whom they've hurt by their addiction. Those who have reached sobriety and are in recovery are then asked to carry the message to other addicts and help them overcome their habit. And essentially that's just like being of service, right? It goes back to the wounded healer archetype. Like if you recover, then you can use your pain to help others. And again, this can be a good framework for some people. It can be not the best framework, but I'm literally basically doing this on my podcast I heard a lot of people psychologically when I was at my worst. I never had a serious drug addiction, but I absolutely had 
a dependence on weed. I absolutely had a people-pleasing addiction. I was absolutely trying to find myself in sexual encounters with other people, thinking that I would find the one. I was addicted to relationships. I was addicted to altering my body. I had so many different addictions. And this frantic way of trying to find myself in people, places, and things meant that I hurt a lot of people along the way and I was not the best version of myself. So I had to go through this process on my own of like making amends, finding myself again, and then I was able to do this podcast and offer a service to the world. Little did I know I'm kind of like going through this 12-step process in my own way. And remember, you can take what resonates from this framework and then leave the rest. You can do it in your own way. It doesn't mean you even have to join a group. You can do it in a way that feels right. But the the foundation upon which these groups were built upon is powerful and can be healing. And I really do believe that it's really hard to find recovery until you start taking this 10,000 foot view and seeing yourself as connected to something bigger. That doesn't mean you have to become super religious. It can just mean that you start to understand that there is something bigger out there, that you are part of a wider connected tapestry of humankind to the earth, to all living things. And do that in a way that feels right for you. And if you go out on the seeking path, I promise you that you will find it. If you ask the universe for help or ask whatever force you want to ask the highest part of yourself for help it will come to you so he goes on to write the 12-step programs are invaluable in providing support and guidance for alcoholics and addicts from the beginning of treatment throughout the years of sobriety and recovery since the focus of this collection of essays is the healing of potential holotropic states we'll now explore whether and in what way these states can be useful in the treatment of addiction this question is closely related to the 11th step that emphasizes the need to, quote, to improve through prayer and meditation our conscious contact with God as we understand God. Since holotropic states can facilitate mystical experiences, they clearly fit into this category. Over the years, I've had extensive experience with the use of holotropic states in the treatment of alcoholics and addicts, and also in the work with recovering people who used them to improve the quality of their sobriety. I participated in a team at the Maryland Psychiatric Research Center in Baltimore that conducted large controlled studies of psychedelic therapy in alcoholics and hard drug addicts in 1980. I've also had the opportunity to witness the effect of serial holotropic breathwork sessions on many recovering people in the context of our training. I'll first share my own observations and experiences from this work and then discuss the problems involved in the larger context of the 12-step movement. In my experience, it's highly unlikely that either holotropic breathwork or psychedelic therapy can help alcoholics and addicts at the time when they're actively using. Even deep and meaningful experiences don't seem to have the power to break the chemical cycle involved. Therapeutic work with holotropic states should be introduced only after alcoholics and addicts have undergone detoxification, overcome the withdrawal symptoms, and reached sobriety. Only then can they benefit from the holotropic experiences and do some deep work on the psychological problems underlying their addiction. At this point, holotropic states can be extremely useful in helping them to confront traumatic memories, process difficult emotions associated with them, and obtain valuable insights into the psychological roots of their abuse. 
Holotropic experiences can also mediate the process of psycho-spiritual death and rebirth that is known as hitting rock bottom and represents a critical turning point in the life of many addicts. The experience of ego death happens here in a protected situation where it doesn't involve the physical, psychological, interpersonal, and social risks it would have if it happened spontaneously in the client's natural surroundings. And finally, Holotropic states can mediate experiential access to profound spiritual experiences, the true object of the alcoholic's or addict's craving, and make it thus less likely that they will seek unfortunate surrogates in alcohol or narcotics. The programs of psychedelic therapy for alcoholics and addicts conducted at the Maryland Psychiatric Research Center were very successful, in spite of the fact that the protocol limited the number of psychedelic sessions to a maximum of three. At a six-month follow-up, over one-half of chronic alcoholics and one-third of hardcore narcotic drug addicts participating in these programs were still sober and were considered, quote, essentially rehabilitated by an independent evaluation team. Recovering people in our training and workshops, almost without exception, see holotropic breathwork as a way of improving the quality of their sobriety and facilitating their psychospiritual growth. In spite of the evidence of its beneficial effects, the use of holotropic states in recovering people meets strong opposition among some conservative members of the 12-step movement. These people assert that alcoholics and addicts seeking any form of a, quote, high are experiencing a, quote, relapse. They pass this judgment not only when the holotropic state involves the use of psychedelic substances, but extend it also to experiential forms of psychotherapy and even to meditation, an approach explicitly mentioned in the description of the 11th step. It's likely that this extremist attitude has its roots in the history of Alcoholics Anonymous. Shortly before the second international AA convention, Bill Wilson, the co-founder of AA, discovered after 20 years of sobriety, the psychedelic LSD. He took it for the first time in 1956 and continued experimenting with it with a coterie of friends and acquaintances, including clergymen and psychiatrists. He was quite enthusiastic about it and believed that this substance had the ability to remove barriers which keep us from directly experiencing God. The AA board was so shocked by his suggestion that LSD sessions would be introduced into AA programs. This caused such major turmoil in the movement and was eventually rejected. We're confronted here with two conflicting perspectives on the relationship between holotropic states and addiction. One of them sees any effort to depart from the ordinary state of consciousness as unacceptable for an addicted person and considers it a relapse. The contrary view is based on the idea that seeking a spiritual experience is a legitimate and natural tendency of every human being, and that striving for transcendence is the most powerful motivating force in the psyche. Addiction is then a misguided and distorted form of this effort, and the most effective remedy for it is facilitating access to genuine spiritual experience. The future will decide which of these two approaches will be adopted by professionals and the recovering community.
In my opinion, the most promising development in the treatment of alcoholism and drug abuse would be a marriage of the 12-step program, the most effective strategy for treating alcoholism and addiction, with transpersonal psychology that can provide a solid theoretical background for spiritually grounded therapy. Responsible use of holotropic therapy would be a very logical, integral part of such comprehensive treatment. My wife and I organized in the 1980s two meetings of the International Transpersonal Association in Eugene, Oregon and Atlanta, Georgia that demonstrated the feasibility and usefulness of bringing together the 12-step programs and transpersonal psychology. The empirical and theoretical justification for such merging was discussed in several publications. The concept of spiritual emergency is new and will undoubtedly be complemented and refined in the future. However, we've repeatedly seen that even in its present form, as defined by Christina and myself, it's been of great help to many individuals in crises of transformation. We've observed that when these conditions are treated with respect and receive appropriate support, they can result in remarkable healing, deep positive transformation, and a higher level of functioning in everyday life. This has often happened in spite of the fact that, in the present situation, the conditions for treating people in psycho-spiritual crises are far from ideal. In the future, the success of this endeavor could increase considerably if people capable of assisting individuals in spiritual emergencies could have at their disposal a network of 24-hour centers for those whose experiences are so intense that they can't be treated on an outpatient basis. At present, the absence of such facilities and lack of support from the insurance companies for unconventional approaches to treatment represent the most serious obstacles in effective application of new therapeutic strategies. So that's the end of the article. A few concluding remarks for me is, this is really interesting, right? I never actually knew that the founder or co-founder Bill Wilson of AA actually dabbled in LSD and wanted to kind of bring it into the AA program. And then it kind of created huge problems and rejection of that. And this just goes to show that even in any kind of institutions, there's always infighting like this. And it really also brings to mind like the rigidity as soon as institutions start becoming really rigid and don't want to open their minds and start learning about new things and changing with the times, they become less and less helpful, right? And they also really reject evolution and we have to keep evolving. We have to be open to new information. Another thing that I wanted to share, if you are interested in these kind of topics, I read this fantastically interesting book called The Sacred Mushroom and the Cross, a study of the nature and origins of Christianity within the fertility cults of the ancient Near East. And this book is written by John M. Allegro. And essentially, this book is a book that was first published in 1970 and it presents a controversial theory about the origins of Christianity and the use of psychoactive mushrooms in ancient religious rites. So the author, Allegro, his central thesis is that the foundations of Christianity, as well as several other religions, were based on ancient fertility cults that used psychoactive mushrooms, specifically one called 
Amanita Muscaria as part of their rituals. And he suggested that the story of Jesus in the New Testament was actually a code for the use of these mushrooms and that many Christian rituals and symbols were actually about the worship and consumption of psychoactive fungi. Allegro argued that the early Christians used the psychoactive properties of these mushrooms to induce religious experiences or visions, which were then interpreted as spiritual revelations or encounters with the divine. While The Sacred Mushroom and the Cross, this book primarily focuses on the use of psychoactive mushrooms in early Christianity, Allegro also touched on the broader use of psychedelic substances in ancient times. He suggests that the use of mind-altering substances to facilitate spiritual experiences was common in various ancient cultures, not just in the Near East, but all around the world. And these substances were often used in religious ceremonies to induce states of altered consciousness, which were seen as ways to communicate with the divine or the spirit realm. Now, John M. Allegro is not just some kooky dude. He was born in 1923, passed away in 1988. He was a respected scholar in his field. He was a philologist, and he was also one of the original scholars selected to work on the Dead Sea Scrolls, a collection of ancient Jewish texts discovered near the Dead Sea. His experience in ancient languages, particularly in the context of religious texts, lent a level of scholarly authority to his work. And despite the controversial nature of his theories, his background and scholarly achievements mean his work is grounded in some serious academic study and linguistic analysis. Of course, his theories were controversial, especially among conservative Christians, for several reasons. First, his claims challenged the literal interpretation of the Bible, suggesting that the stories of Jesus were more allegorical and not literal historical events. Also, the idea of sacred scriptures being codes for what some conservative Christians would just shrug off as drug use was seen as profoundly irreverent and offensive to traditional Christian beliefs. His work was also viewed as an attack on the foundations of Christianity, undermining the religion's historical and spiritual legitimacy. And this book also came at a time when there was some serious cultural backlash against drugs and the counterculture movement of the 60s and 70s, which made the subject even more contentious. But I find this particularly fascinating because you really see some connecting threads here. And again, highly recommend this book. It's available on Audible, which I think is a bit of an easier way to digest it because it's a bit long and it's really interesting just to listen to when you're on a walk or in the bath. Um, but yeah, dive into it if you find it fascinating. And I think it would probably be a lot more well-received today if it were released now in the modern era than when it was released originally. But yeah, you know, think, think what you will, ponder on it and come to your own conclusions about these things. But I imagine if you're still listening and you have been listening to all three episodes of this series, you're somebody who's already open-minded to these concepts. And we really need to start opening our minds more to holotropic states, to the idea of spiritual emergency, and to coming to a more deep understanding of integral spirituality instead of really shutting down if something doesn't fit perfectly with our Abrahamic sky daddy view of religion or a really materialist atheistic view where you only believe something is real if you can see, touch, and hear it. Both of those things are very limiting. And it's my hope that as we continue this collective awakening process, 
we can start to come from a more balanced and integrated place spiritually. Because like I said, I really think people that are super dogmatic in their Abrahamic religion, whether that be like Islam, Judaism, Christianity, where whatever religion you practice and you think other people don't have it figured out, I do, my God is the good one, everyone else is going to hell, you know? I grew up also in Wyoming around a lot of people that were members of the Mormon church that also believed that. And then, you know, once I started diving into esotericism and more like the new age spiritual circles, I saw so many people in those spaces are just as dogmatic as the Christians that they would so quickly shit on as being, you know, so close-minded. So it's really important that we have our critical thinking pants on, as I mentioned before, and really start seeing through the bullshit here. Anytime where you position yourself in this guru style, egotistical, I've got it all figured out, no one else does, no go. Myself, I prefer a more mystical approach. I like to read spiritual texts from all different types of esoteric threads of the main religions and read the work of the mystics, of people who believed in this cloud of unknowing that we don't really know and surrendering to the unknown, but also exploring the idea that we are all connected and that we are connected to the, to the earth to all the beings that are on this earth and to all the other human beings who populate it and that we have to start within. We can't focus on what's wrong without. We have to change what's inside first. And if you're experiencing any of these states, then I hope that this series was helpful for you. And I hope that it can just open the door to you finding your own path because I can't tell you what's best. And as I mentioned before, the biggest disclaimer on earth, right? I'm not a therapist. I'm not a professional. I'm not someone who has this all figured out. I'm a fellow seeker. I'm trying to use my talents, which is a researcher, a fellow seeker, someone who has been to the depths of, you know, mental hell and back and trying to use my skills of creating podcasting content that can hopefully bring this information to you. And then it's up to you what you do with it. You are your own best advocate. You now have the information. What I've shared here, some of it might resonate with you, some of it might not, but hopefully it can open your mind. I'll be including resources in the episode description that you can check out. I highly recommend that you start off with visiting the spiritualemergencenetwork.org. That's just spiritualemergencenetwork.org, but also know that stuff is in the episode description for you to check out too. All right, everyone, that's it for this episode of Back from the Borderline. If you'd like to unlock ad-free episodes as well as hundreds of hours of bonus content, you can join my Patreon community by becoming a premium submarine. All you have to do is visit backfromtheborderline.com. And while you're there, you can follow me on Instagram, you can sign up for my free Substack newsletter alerts, and you can even send me a voicemail to tell me how the podcast has changed your life. Another way to help support my work is to rate and review the podcast, follow it on your favorite podcast player so you're alerted every time I drop a new episode each week. And also the best thing you can do is share an episode with somebody that you love and care about. That is my favorite way. Never forget, you haven't met all of you yet. Within your weakness, your inner chaos and disorder lies your greatest strength. If only you dare to shine a light on it and transmute it. You have to get 
to the point where you're willing to be the fool to begin your hero's journey. And remember, anyone, even you, can come back from the borderline. I'll see you next time. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Back from the Borderline. If you'd like to receive my monthly written recovery musings via Substack directly to your inbox, send me a voicemail, join the Patreon community, or check out my Amazon booklist recommendations, visit backfromtheborderline.com and click to access my link tree.